you can't say that the other people are bad people and evil people trying to destroy the country. You can say you disagree with them. You can say that you think that they're wrong. Hey, it's Johanna Maskin. On this episode of Press Advance, we're talking about democracy, elections, and the media's coverage. On election night in the U.S. in 2020, then Fox News political director Chris Steyerwalt was part of a decision desk team that called Arizona for the then Vice President Joe Biden. That call was quickly questioned by the network anchors, calling the decision desk leaders on air to get more information on why the network felt that call was accurate. Soon after, there were debates within President Trump's circles on how to handle the president's response to this call. Bill Stepien, the then campaign manager for President Trump's bid, would later testify that he told President Trump to say it was too early to call. But instead, that night, President Trump took to the podium to sow doubts in our election process. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. As far as I'm concerned, we already have one. This was not true. It continued until January 6th with the attack on our Capitol building. To this day, President Trump has not accepted the results of our election. President Trump was the first president since 1869 to not join his successor at the inauguration ceremony at the Capitol for a peaceful transition of power. His inability to work with federal investigators to turn over classified materials he took with him when he left the White House, some of which contained highly sensitive information, has now resulted in a federal indictment on 37 charges. Despite all of this, he is still a leading contender for the Republicans' nomination. Heading into 2024, we know there's polarization and distrust in our country. There's polarization in our media climate, and the next election could test our systems again. Which is why, as we explore this upcoming election, I turned to my now colleague, News Nation's political editor, Chris Steyerwalt, who has the historical knowledge to help us contextualize what might happen and the perseverance to tell the truth. One of the things that has made our election system so much at risk and the reason that Republicans claim that it's rigged and Democrats say uh, that there's all this voter suppression, one of the reasons that this has become such a hallmark of our times is that we live in such an evenly divided nation politically. We haven't had a real blowout uh, quadrennial election since 2008, and it's been a long time. And so when you have a lot of close elections where you're counting, where you're talking about 10 or 20,000 votes in key states, which by the standards of American political history is very narrow, people pay extraordinary attention. So if we think about in 2000, the the turmoil around uh, the Florida elections process was because it was 538 votes. It was very, very, very close. So I know it sounds obvious, but people don't care about the conduct of elections nearly as much when you have a lopsided result. In 2008, nobody said, I don't know, I think John McCain may have actually won. No, because it was a blowout. When the Republican loses Indiana and North Carolina, loses Virginia for the first time since 1964, 
people don't say, I don't know, let's see what's really going on here. So for your, as you think about the 2024 result, you have to ask the question, what kind of election is it going to be? And we don't know yet. It's certainly, let's say that the outcome that is the most probable at this point uh, is that it's a rematch of Donald Trump and Joe Biden. It's not very probable, but it's the most probable outcome uh, that it's a rematch of the two and that the results are broadly similar to what they were the last time that they ran, which is to say that Biden wins decisively, but still in a narrowly contested race, uh, and that there are eight or 10 battleground states and that it's, it's bitterly fought. Uh, but there are other scenarios. Um, next most likely scenario would probably be that the, you get the same two candidates again and Donald Trump gets exploded, right? That uh, Republicans lose North Carolina again. North Carolina was very close in 2020. And other states like Ohio, Iowa, Indiana could potentially fall into the uh, Democrats' column. And in a situation like that, no one is going to have much to say. Certainly in a scenario like that, Republicans are not going to want to talk about the election after it's over. They're not going to want to say, hey, let's relitigate. And then there's the other scenario, uh, which is that the Republicans, uh, that, that we have other candidates or that the Republicans have another candidate and Joe Biden loses decisively. And if that happens, then you, you wouldn't have that problem again. That's a very long way of saying it is true that the most likely scenario, which is a rematch of 2020 contested along similar lines, would produce probably lots of Sturm und Drang around the question of vote counting and all of that stuff. But that's only one, that's only one potential story. And when we look at that, I think if the Republicans nominate anyone, but, but President Trump, who has just as much I guess, venom out there for his candidacy as he has enthusiasm. I think they stand a very good chance. But in terms of the Biden team, I know these folks. I think that they will accept what election officials say, provided the election is fair and free. News organizations are not the ones who ultimately decide who's the president. That's part of the process of the elections officials. But news organizations play a big role in kind of contextualizing that. What do you think the media organizations, have they learned anything since the 2020 election? Well, you know, we have to think about what the other kinds of scenarios uh, we could be talking about. So let's say that in another state, where Republicans have changed the rules uh, surrounding uh, how to count votes, that Republican lawmakers in Arizona, let's say, were to intervene on a count and stop a count or throw out ballots. Um, you again have the possibility of civil unrest, right? Because Democrats, uh, angry Democrats could take to the streets. You could see a replay of the summer. Uh, and this is, by the way, something that I was quite afraid of. Uh, I, I knew about the possibility for, you know, proud boy kind of pro Trump violence in 2020. Um, but I was also concerned about whether the black lives matter movement or th that there would be the potential for civil unrest, uh, if Donald Trump were to have won. So you also have to think about the scenario in which 
Democrats believe that there has been fraud in the counting or that the Republican lawmakers have intervened and engaged in uh, uh, a disruption of the normal process or or uh, Democrats are claiming that they have and that that it is uh, not accepted that way. The danger that awaits the United States if we continue in this direction is that we will eventually have, and thank God for the passage of the um, Electoral Vote Count Act, uh, which was a, the, the most important thing uh, accomplished in the uh, previous Congress. Super important. <laughs> um, but the where you go when you have these kinds of fundamental disputes is that you do not have all of the country recognizing the one president, the unitary executive. And, you know, I don't like to be a doomcaster and I don't like to talk about the imaginary disasters of the future. But what Americans are, are toying with, what we are nosing around, is the possibility that we would not have a universally acknowledged uh, chief executive and that there would be a pretender that you would have a situation where you had some people declaring one person the president, other people declaring another person the president. Matter goes to the Supreme Court. And if picture this scenario, a re- Republican officials in Arizona uh, change the or stop or in Georgia, stop the count or throw out ballots uh, on the county level. Uh, the matter ends up in front of the Supreme Court and what Chuck Schumer calls the MAGA Supreme Court, uh, that if that Supreme Court upholds uh, the action on the state level and declares Donald Trump president, what happens in the country? What do Democrats do? So we have to acknowledge that we, I I do not think that's what's going to happen uh, necessarily, but we we have to acknowledge that this is the realm that we have entered into. And what we have to decide as journalists, what we have to decide as citizens, what we have to decide as Democrats or Republicans or independents is that we're aware of those risks and that we will treat them with respect and that we will treat the process with respect. And I think that is incumbent on journalists. It's also incumbent, though, on all of us uh, to acknowledge that this is something something to uh, we should be very proud of our system and our uh, the, being the envy of the world for the peaceful transference of power, but we should acknowledge that the choices that we make as individuals uh, have a material effect. They they do and they will. What I love most, Chris, about you and what you always bring to the table in these intellectual conversations is the historical viewpoint. And what I love that you write about is this is not the first time in history we've had partisan press. In fact, our corporate press has had a history of rooting for a team. And in some cases, you know, we have the history of yellow journalism, which is much like clickbait, where you are trying to sell papers by crazy headlines. What can history tell us? Have we ever had sort of those scenarios where it's been I mean, clearly not to the extent that it was in 2020, but some of those debates have played out in history. Well, I I think, you know, since we are at the very beginning of the nominating process, um, I've been thinking a lot about the election of 1912. And in the election of 1912, 
um, Theodore Roosevelt. So Roosevelt served out McKinley, the remainder of McKinley's term after he was assassinated, uh, ran for a term in his own right, won overwhelmingly, and was very popular, and opted not to seek a second full term. Um, and instead, his uh, war secretary, uh, he, he basically designated William Taft of Ohio, his war secretary, uh, as his designee to be his successor. Uh, Taft won the presidency, and whereas Roosevelt was uh, a progressive who had some populist tendencies, Taft was a very conservative conservative, right? He was a, his family had been in the Republican Party since the founding. Uh, his grandfather, father, grandfather served in Lincoln's administration, uh, and Taft was uh, old school, old line, would go on to basically be <clears throat> the the founding uh, impulse for the United States Chamber of Commerce, uh, to give you an idea of, of where he would exist on the political spectrum. So Taft did not govern in the way that Roosevelt instructed him to, and did not uh, continue the progressive movement uh, as he went. And the Republicans in Congress were conservative too. So Roosevelt leaves, goes off to Africa, kills 10,000 animals, ships him back to the Smithsonian, wears funny hats, uh, goes around, and as he is getting dispatches from the United States is getting increasingly angry at Taft because Taft is not doing what Roosevelt told him to do. And Roosevelt, a lot like Donald Trump, uh, a child of privilege from New York did not like it when the people that he believed owed him, uh, were not doing what they were supposed to do. And Roosevelt came back and he basically told Taft that he better do, he better step aside. And Taft would not. And Roosevelt went to, and I don't know, you may have been part of planning this event, um, but Obama, for his framing speech for his second term, went to uh, Osawatomie in Kansas uh, for for the very reason that it was where Teddy Roosevelt went to give his square deal speech. Uh, but where where Roosevelt called for universal health insurance and many progressive priorities, uh, including uh, one which was that the verdicts of the rulings of the Supreme Court could be overturned by national plebiscite, that you could have a, a referendum and recall on a Supreme Court ruling, all kinds of super progressive stuff. That would be amazing. I mean, what that would that would be so interesting, Chris. If by interesting you mean incredibly awful and bad all the time because no decision would be final and billions of dollars would be spent to try to overturn results and we'd have to go to the polls all the time, it would definitely be interesting. And it would literally be like it would be like California how we put everything to ballot measure. And that works out that works out so well, right? When you say Sometimes. when you say to people, <laughs> when you say to people, do you want low taxes or high spending? And they say both. So uh, Roosevelt goes and and goes to Kansas and gives his square deal speech and lays it out. And what Taft, the choice that Taft is faced with, is that he is less popular than Roosevelt, um, but he has the apparatus of the party in his hands. And in those days, of course, it was before primaries and it was a convention based system. And what followed was the most awful con- there were, the state police in New Jersey were called out. There were, there was violence at, uh, at state conventions as delegates were being picked across the country again and again and again. 
and when they got to Chicago for the national convention in 1912, they put um, uh, barbed wire behind the bunting on the stage because they knew that the Roosevelt supporters were very likely to storm the podium uh, and that there was they had private detectives walking the aisles because they knew that there was such a strong likelihood of violence. And if you find the speech that Roosevelt gave, in those days, candidates didn't go to the conventions, but Roosevelt went to Chicago and he stood outside of his hotel. And if you read the speech that Roosevelt delivered, it's terrifying. So Taft knew that it was possible, maybe even probable, that Roosevelt would break away and would do this. Um, remember, this is a period of time in which the Democrats had only won the president. The, between Franklin Roosevelt uh, and James Buchanan, the last Democrat, the last president before Abraham Lincoln, uh, the Democrats had only to this point uh, had the pre- had the presidency under one person, the two split terms of Grover Cleveland, uh, for a lot of reasons, actually also relating to progressivism and populism and the fractures in the democratic party. Uh, the Democrats could not field, uh, a winning candidate and the Republicans, uh, rode herd through most of this era. So Roosevelt declaring as a third party candidate was more than a credible threat. He became the front runner. Um, and Woodrow Wilson, the professorial, dude from New Jersey, the Southerner from New Jersey, um, was a not, did not seem to be, well, maybe the simplest way I can put it is if it would have been Taft or Roosevelt versus Wilson, he would have lost by 20 points, right? It would have been a, it would have been a, it would have been another blowout for Republicans, but the, the vote was divided and Wilson got in and there were a lot of obvious consequences to that. Um, uh, and depending on how you butter your political bread, good consequences or bad consequences, but it turned out to be a really important moment. But Taft wrote his son during all of the violence, during the upheaval, during all of these, these problems. And he said that he would rather fight Roosevelt and lose than lose the Republican party to the progressives. Because if there was no conservative party in America, if both parties were progressive parties, then there would be nobody left to defend the Constitution and that there'd be nobody left to stand up for those traditional values. And and he and he believed he would go on to be a Supreme Court justice. He would go on to, you know, be William Howard Taft. And he was content in his choice. And I think at this moment, Republicans have a similar reality to face. They would like to get rid of Donald Trump, but not lose the general election. And the truth is that if the Republicans do not nominate Donald Trump, they will lose a ton of his supporters, right? A ton of his supporters will not come out and vote for Ronnie D or Tim Scott or whomever. Um, and that's, that's the truth. On the other hand, there are a ton of people who would otherwise vote for a Republican candidate that will not, who will not vote for Donald Trump. And this is a deep, deep fissure and one that does not offer easy reconciliation. So as Republicans think about and talk about how to proceed, I think this is a time where people have to choose what they want to do. There is not a strategic right answer that presents itself immediately, right? There isn't a, aha. And so by doing this, right, you could have said, in 2016 for Republicans. You may not like Jeb Bush, but he's got the money and a famous name and he'll run best against Hillary. And so do that. 
it may may or may not have been true, but it was a plausible argument. There isn't such a plausible argument this time for Republicans. And it makes it weirder and more challenging because you actually are asking people to pick what they want, not what they think will win. And as DeSantis has found with the electability argument, it kind of ends up ringing hollow. And uh, this is this is a real time of testing for the Republicans. And consequently, what happens next, uh, whether it's a second Biden term, a new Republican Party, uh, a new Democratic Party, something. But, you know, very much we are at a, a fulcrum point in history. And I think everybody knows it. That's so interesting. And in terms of the press coverage of all of these moves at the time, I mean, it was, was the media kind of at that point also shifting a little bit or? Well, this was uh, before radio, uh, but the pre- this was the age of the press lords. Uh, and this was the age of uh, the great mighty newspapers. This is the Hearst Papers. This is the Tribune. Uh, this is, uh, you talked about yellow journalism. Uh, this is the age of the dominance of the press lords where people who owned newspapers uh, had great power. Colonel McCormick in Chicago, uh, Hearst in California. These were giants, and they pick sides, right? They pick sides and participated. Teddy Roosevelt was a media sensation, right? The exploits, you know, we call them teddy bears because of the alleged story of him encountering a bear in the woods, and he was larger than life, and he was funny looking, and he was brash. And he, you know, the story of Roosevelt uh, giving a speech, getting shot, but his speech and his speeches were so awful uh, giving giving a speech. But but it was stopped. Uh, He was he was there to give a speech, but his glasses case in his breast pocket uh, and his speech stopped the bullet uh, and he gave the speech anyway. That is the stuff that reporters love. Right. Reporters love that stuff. And you know what they don't like? William Howard Taft or uh, Woodrow Wilson reserved quiet, uh, dignified people who do not uh, go around. I think about this a lot with uh, Tim Scott and the coverage uh, of Tim Scott and the questions that he's faced about his sex life and about um, being a bachelor and all of those things and how the media's appetite for scandal and salaciousness. You know, Donald Trump was really what, what we wanted. We wanted a candidate who was absolutely, you know, stripped bare uh, in front of the cameras who had an insatiable appetite for coverage and who would do anything, right? And that's how, you know, Trump was what the media asked for. And then after he gave them what they wanted, he gave us what we wanted, uh, many in the press said, well, no, this is not, we, you're supposed to lose now, right? So, and again, this is this is back to that point about if we are at an important point in our history, and all the points in our history are important, but if we are at a point of turmoil and we are at a point uh, of between times, we are in a, a Janus-like pose between eras, if that is what is going on here in these uh, 2020s, then we as journalists have particular obligations to not engage in practices that are bad for the country and undermine confidence in the electoral process. And, uh, you know, I wrote a book uh, about this, and it's something that's very important to me, which is we have special obligations to the Constitution. We have special obligations uh, to the men and women who died to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. Um, but I got I got to say, um, the 
the reality is we need an awakening. We need a civic awakening among Americans, especially journalists, to honor our debts and be responsible and, and be good when we do it. Partisan or opinionated journalism can still be good journalism, but it has to be aspirationally fair and it has to acknowledge the truth about who the other people are. You can't say that the other people are bad people and evil people trying to destroy the country. You can't say you disagree with them. You can say that you think that they're wrong. You can say that you think they're stupid, but that's different. You know, we, we watched with George W. Bush, people say that he, Bush lied, people died that he wanted the United States to have a misadventure in Iraq and that it was all on purpose and it was for blood for oil. There's a lot of things that you could say about George Bush, but I don't think any fair-minded person would say that he wanted what happened in Iraq to happen. And then we saw Barack Obama, we saw it said that Barack Obama was a secret Muslim from Kenya who had infiltrated the American electoral system to pull down the United States from within. You can say a lot of things about Barack Obama, but secret Kenyan Muslim is not one of the things that you can say about Barack Obama. Uh, he's a he's a he's a guy who he he uh, was exactly what he presented himself to be, which is to be a progressive liberal guy from the south side of Chicago, whose opinions and attitudes were very much in keeping with that part of his party. And then with Donald Trump, it was that Donald Trump was trying to destroy the United States for Russia. Uh, not that Donald Trump was a nincompoop or not that Donald Trump was a fool or wrong or whatever, but that it was bigger than that and it was more than that. And I think that this trend points to the kind of oh, apocalyptic or um, uh, existentialist kind of politics that are very unhealthy. Because if we raise the stakes, if we keep raising the stakes, it, it didn't, if the future of America truly hinged on which elderly white man from a mid-Atlantic state won the 2020 election, then America was already done, right? Then we're already done if the outcome of that election could determine uh, the survival of the United States, because the survival of the United States depends on the citizens of the United States, not the president of the United States. That's what we're supposed to have is a system of divided powers and all of that jazz. I can only tell you what I try to do. What I try to do is keep it in perspective, I try to see the world through other people's eyes and I try to be fair. And all of that begins with the understanding that I might be wrong and having enough humility to say that I don't know all the answers and I'm willing to find out. First, just commenting on what you were talking about, the sacrifices that so many have given us to have the freedoms that too often we take for granted. I mean, especially after Memorial Day, I think it's important to remember how many people have died for the freedoms that we could take for granted. And then right after, you know, that notion, I'm seeing it, whether people are following people who are crazy, you know, right or crazy left, they've gotten indoctrinated. And I've seen this in my family, you know, families are getting ripped apart. And it's only because of short-sighted politicians, like one side is not all good. And one side is not all bad. We need to break through that so that people can start to find some humility and grace and listen to one another. Or you're right, we could be doomed. That's a on that <laughs> cheerful note. Not what yeah. either one of us wants. <laughs> <laughs> 
We're going to try to keep it real, but with history. And so, Chris, I always, I'm so grateful for your historical perspective. It's going to be a long election season, but it's important to find trustworthy voices in the media, in politics, who aren't afraid to tell the truth. I'm grateful for Chris today for doing just that. And I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I did. I started Press Advance to bring back the type of politics we practiced in Iowa with the Obama campaign, one in which we respect, empower, include. I'm really excited that there are so many with us connecting as we do this. And as always, send me your notes, your thoughts. Let me know if I should read them on the podcast. If you like what you're hearing, share it with a friend. I'm really grateful to all of you who are joining us.